um, to our passage this morning. We are coming to Israel's wedding day. That's essentially what's happening here. Israel has come to Mount Sinai to enter into uh, covenant with God, which is like being married to God. Now, there's something about Israel's wedding day that is drastically different than any wedding you've ever been to. Almost every wedding you've ever been to, you know, everything's perfect, everything's sweet, there's beautiful music, all of these things. At Israel's wedding day, it is literally traumatic. Did y'all hear the passage? I mean, literally, it's like, it's like you show up for your wedding day and an earthquake and a tornado and a storm and a volcano all happen at the same time. It's very, very traumatic. Kids, have you ever been outside in a storm before and been really scared? Has it ever happened? It, it's, you know, it, it's, it is amazing to be in the middle of a storm and, how, and feel the, the power and the terror of a storm And if you know that experience at all, you're in a great place to enter into the story to what it might have been like for the Israelites on this significant moment that really forms them as a people. So we've been going through in our sermon series, the book of Exodus. And just to recap, you know, the book of Exodus is a story. It's a continuous story. It's a very defining uh, moment in the life of the Israelites. And we started out in the very beginning and, and God's people are where? Can anybody tell me, kids maybe? Where were the Israelites whenever we start the book of Egypt? I mean, (laughs) spoiler. Okay, so you really got to get it now. Whenever we start the book of Exodus, where are the Israelites? Egypt, that's right. And what were they doing in Egypt? Were they toasting and eating steak, fine steak, and, and enjoying themselves? What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. In fact, they had been slaves for 400 years. Life in Egypt was incredibly hard. And God hears his people and he comes down and he rescues his people through the blood of a lamb and he parts the sea and they pass through. He rescues his people in the most dramatic way. We saw last week he leads them into the wilderness, directly into the wilderness in order to to refine his people. He takes them right into hardship and difficulty in order to shape them. He feeds them and provides for them. And then after three months, finally they arrive here at Mount Sinai. Now the interesting thing is that we're in the same spot that we began the book. Do you remember whenever God came and called Moses in the burning bush? It was in the same spot, the mountain of the Lord. And here they are back again, and Moses has got a lot of people with him this time. God's people that have been rescued. And in this moment, in this encounter, God comes down to marry his people, to enter into covenant with them. Now, let's get the flow of the story, okay? So they've come to the mountain, and they're there, and God calls Moses up and says, I want you to go back down to the people, and I want you to tell them what's about to happen. And he comes down and he delivers, which is almost like kind of like, wedding vows as he comes down and he begins with the reminder, you yourselves saw what I did when I rescued you from Egypt and carried you to myself and brought you to myself. Now, here's what you're to do. You're to obey my commands. You're to express your love and your loyalty to me by keeping my commands. And he will lay out the Ten Commandments and all the laws of Israel. And that is how they are to express their love and loyalty to him. And he says, if you... 
Keep my commands, then out of all nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession. And then Moses goes back down to the people. He delivers the news and lays out the commands. And how does Israel respond? I do. I will. They take their vows back. We will do everything that the Lord has said. Such an eager bride. So eager to respond in faithfulness to her husband. And then Moses comes back and tells the Lord what they have said. And he says, all right, get the people ready. I'm about to come down. And he gives them careful regulations of how they are to prepare themselves to meet with God. Very detailed, very strict, very important instructions of how they are to be prepared for the special presence of the Lord. And then the day comes. They're before the mountain and God in his holy presence descends on the mountain. And did you notice the way that it's described? I mean, just imagine for a moment what it would have been like for the Israelites as the holy presence of the Lord descends on Mount Sinai. We see, as we've seen before, that any time God shows up and manifests His presence, it's in the form of smoke and fire. We've seen that at the burning bush. We've seen that all the way back in Genesis, whenever God appears to Abraham in the, the smoking fire pot that passes through in the covenant. We've seen that with uh, God leading His people through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke, of fire. That is how God manifested or brokered his presence. It was in the form of smoke and fire. But yet here on Mount Sinai, the intensity of his presence is like never before. God comes down and his presence is literally terrifying. There's a storm that descends on the top of Mount Sinai. There's Thick blackness, there is thunder and lightning, peals of lightning that would just send tremors through your bones. And the Israelites are literally standing there at the foot of the mountain beholding this scene. We see that, that the fire of the Lord comes down on the mountain. The mountain is literally shaking and the smoke is coming up like from a furnace. And all the while all of this is taking place, there is a loud a trumpet, ram's horn that is being sounded and it's getting louder and louder and louder. Some mysterious heavenly horn that is being blown. Literally in that moment, it was like being in the presence of an earthquake, a volcano or tornado and a thunderstorm all wrapped up into one. Imagine what it would have been like to encounter the Lord in that moment. So imagine we walk outside of our building right here and we're literally at the foot of a mountain. I mean, it's almost exactly like what it would have been like for them. I mean, Mount Sinai was probably a little bit higher than Sand Mountain. But imagine standing out in our parking lot, being at the foot of this mountain, and looking up on the top of Sand Mountain, and literally seeing the darkness, the fire, the thunder, the ground rumbling below your feet as the holy presence of the Lord descended on the mountain. And then imagine watching Moses walk up into the storm. What would you have been feeling? What would you have been thinking? Probably terror. I mean, this is the Israelites were a large group of families. You can imagine holding your children as they were beholding this sight. It would have been a sight they would have never have forgotten as they encounter the living God. So what do we learn from the scene that we see here? Two things. First of all, we see an unmistakable picture of the holiness of God. 
Now, this is a shocking scene for us because we are not uh, naturally attuned to thinking of God in, a, in His holiness in this kind of way. In fact, in our culture, we're far more prone to think about God in His love, in His approachability, in His nearness. As we come to the scene here, we see a very different picture of God, one that kind of confronts us right off the bat, as we see the terror of God's holiness. I mean, imagine being in His presence as God's presence comes down. It is terrifying. Anytime in the Scripture anyone encounters the living God, almost always the response is the same, face on the ground and terror. And the reason is, is because God's holiness is so vast and so pure and so powerful, literally, it would terrify us to be in its presence. I don't know if you've ever been around anything that had tremendous power in it. Like you can imagine someone handing you a stick of dynamite. Even if it's not lit, you would have a sense of kind of terror at it. Or if someone were to hand you a gun, a loaded gun, there's a sense in, of, of fear as you handle it because you know the potential and the power that is in it. Imagine standing on top of a nuclear reactor. What would you feel? Just a little kind of touch of what it's like to encounter the holy presence of the Lord. And we see here as God's presence comes down that, that it literally affects everything around them. They can feel it. They can see it. It's loud. Also, we see the danger of His holiness. We see all of these regulations of how they're to purify themselves. They're to go through a process of consecration and being prepared for the presence of the Lord. And then even beyond that, there are a series of warnings in our passage about how they are uh, to prepare themselves, how they are not to go past a certain limit. In fact, even whenever Moses is meeting with God in the cloud, he says, listen, you've got to go back. You've got to make sure they don't cross the limits. And Moses said, we've, we've already told them. We've already set the limits. Yes, yes, but go back again and make sure they don't get too close. We see the danger of His holiness, which shows us that God cannot be in the presence of sin. And to do so is dangerous. Literally, His holiness and His judgment would break out against it. This is kind of a shock to our system in how we typically think about God. The interesting thing is that there are other cultures in the world that are very different, kind of the opposite of ours. If you were to go to more Eastern cultures, their conception of God is a lot more similar to this, that God is awe-inspiring, He's powerful, He's beyond us, He's not to be trifled with, He is to be approached with a sense of awe. Now, if you were to, to speak about God as being loving and near and kind and compassionate to cultures like that, they would almost say, what are you talking about? It's a foreign concept. Now, it's just the opposite with us. In our culture, we're more inclined to think of God more like a sugar daddy, right? Kind of like an old papaw in the sky, just kind and gentle, just hoping you to kind of look his way or, you know. And we can be so nonchalant and flippant before the holy God, before the holy one. You know, bounding in and out of his presence, not thinking twice about about how we should approach Him or what He is like. But as we come to the passage here, we are encountered with a very different picture of the living God, one that is not like our imaginations might show us. I had a pretty neat experience about a month ago. 
I got to go down. This is pretty amazing that they even let this happen. I got to go down to the Georgia State Capitol, and I got to do to open the session of Congress with prayer and a devotional. Do you know that they our our the state of Georgia's legislature starts every day of business with a minister coming in and opening in prayer and a devotion, like 20 minutes. I was surprised they even let it happen, but they do every single day. And I had the privilege to get to go down and to do this. And I thought, you know, hey, this is pretty cool, and I go down. And part of the festivities for the minister is that after you lead the, open the session and everything, you get to go and meet the governor. And I thought, yeah, it's neat, you know, I'm no, no big deal or whatever. But then it came time to go meet the governor, and we come into this office, and there was a series of aides there, and they're preparing you to go in. And, and then you walk into another room that's a little bit closer to his oval office, and there's another set of aides and everything, and they're kind of preparing you. And then you go into another room, and they're preparing you more, and you begin to get the sense, oh, wait a minute, there's something to this here. And as I walked into his Oval Office, I mean, just the, the grandeur of the room kind of struck me. I mean, even, even as I walked into the room, it was a sense of like, hey, there's, there's power in this room. And as I walked in and I met the governor, I was kind of taken back. I didn't expect to have this experience. But, you know, we probably said three words together, and he shook my hand. And now what if I were to come into that room, and if I were to like just make a fool of myself, or if I were to go in there and I were to start telling him what he needs to do, that would have been totally improper. It would have been a violation of the office, even if I disagreed about him. This is not something that we think about much in our culture of democracy. In our culture of democracy, it's kind of a turning upside down of authority, right? We tend to, you know, those who are in authority, we tear apart. We tear them down because in a democracy, we, the voters, are the ones who are in charge, the ones who have authority. Now, there's some wonderful things about that, particularly that it protects us against an abuse and a misuse of power. But it also tends to distort our understanding of authority. Whenever you walk into the presence of authority and power, it is only right that you begin to have a sense of respect and awe. How much more whenever we come into the presence of the living God? Our passage shows us that our God is not a sugar daddy, but he is the Holy One, the one who cannot be contained in the entire universe, the one who, whenever he descends with his holy presence, it's almost overwhelming and it's dangerous. That, seeing his glory, seeing his holiness, is what makes his love so unbelievable. You separate either of those two realities about who God is, and it loses its power. You know, powerless, casual love of God will not change you. But whenever the one who, is, who moves towards you in love is the Holy One, that will change you. And the only way for those two qualities to come together is in the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in just a minute. So we see a tremendous picture here of the awesome, terrifying holiness of God. But we see something else even more prominently, and that is this concept of covenant. As God's people enter into covenant with His people. Now, covenant is a special relationship, 
a relationship of intimacy, a relationship of promise. And notice in the passage how we see it described here. Look at verses 4 through 6 as God gives the message that he is to go and to take to the Israelites. And look at what he says to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He starts, the covenant is founded on the reality that God is the one who rescued his people. It's founded upon his prior grace for them. And notice how he describes it there. It's like God describes his rescue of them as if he were a a bird of prey that swooped in and scooped up his people and brought them to himself. Incredibly tender kind of words to describe his rescue of his people. And then look how he describes this relationship. If you obey me fully and keep my commands, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Do you have any treasured possessions? Do you have anything in your life, in your house, whatever, that if your house was on fire, this is the one thing that you would go to get? Do you have anything perhaps from a loved one, perhaps uh, a memory, perhaps something in your life that you have attached tremendous meaning to, a treasure, something that's precious to you? If you have something like that, you have an idea of what God is saying to those who are in covenant with him. You are my treasured possession. I own the whole world. It all belongs to me. But you, you are my treasure. You see the privilege of the covenant there? He goes on to say, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the idea of priest is to have the free, full access to the presence of God. That was the reality of priests. They could enter into the presence of God like no one else. It was access. It was tremendous privilege. And God is saying for those who are in covenant with him, you will be a kingdom of priests. You will all have this access into my holy presence where you may approach and find intimacy with me. Incredible picture of the privilege and intimacy of the covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is simply a relationship that is sealed by a promise, a special relationship that is governed by a promise. And that's what makes it different than all other relationships. All other relationships in our life are relationships in which you can enter into and out of without any kind of boundaries. In other words, we all have friendships in our life. We all have friendships in our life that might come and go. Now, these might be relationships in which we might love the other person. We might experience a tremendous amount of of intimacy and kindness and friendship. But at the end of the day, it's going to pass away. At the end of the day, we might just kind of drift apart. But what makes a covenant unique is that it is sealed by a promise. In other words, two people enter into this relationship and say, I'm never going to leave. I promise myself to you forever. I promise my deepest loyalties to you. You now will come before everything else in my life. That is a covenant. It is sealed and guarded by a promise, not by feelings, not by benefit, not by anything else, but rather by promise. Now, the easiest way to understand the concept of covenant is to think about one that's most common in our world, marriage. It's a covenant. If you think about the difference between marriage and a dating relationship, in a dating relationship, you might feel deep feelings of love. You might, uh, you might 
tremendously enjoy one another. There might be all kinds of benefits and all kinds of things. But what, at the end of the day, separates a dating relationship and marriage is that in marriage, two parties have promised themselves to one another. They've bound themselves to one another. They've sealed the relationship to a degree that if you want to break it up, you literally got to rip it apart emotionally, physically, financially, even legally. You see, the nature of covenant is one in which it has been sealed. You see, the reality about God is that God does not enter into intimate relationship and then pull back out. That's not who He is. Whenever God enters into a relationship with a people, He binds Himself to them by promise, by covenant. Do you see how remarkable that is? The holy God, the one who fills the entire universe, the one who has no need of anything, binds himself in relationship to his people. He is a a promise-making God. That is astounding. That he would come to us and say, I promise myself to you and I will never leave. That is amazing. He doesn't have to do that. An incredible privilege. It also gives a tremendous value to marriage. And it also begins to show us the significance of sexual relationship within the confines of marriage. You see, God designed sex to be exclusively for the confines of marriage because in sexual relationship, two parties are given their deepest intimacy to the other and they're taking the deepest intimacy from the other person and it is only to be shared in the confines of promise. You see the order there. I come to you and I say, I give you my entire life. I will never leave you, so now give me your intimacy. That's exactly what God is like. As he comes to give his deepest intimacy, he only does it after he has bound himself to his people. That makes the importance and beauty of sexual relationship between husband and wife go through the roof because it's a picture about God himself. So that's the privilege of the covenant. But there's also another aspect of the covenant, and it's a responsibility of the covenant. There are responsibilities in covenant relationship with God. We see it right here in the passage. Look at verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Did you see that if? That is a clause of condition. That is a clause of requirement. If you obey me fully and keep my commands, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Jump down to verse 8. All the people, they hear all that God had laid out before them, and they respond by saying, we will do everything the Lord has said. What Moses lays out to the people are God's commands, his laws, his regulations. We'll get into those next week as we look at the Ten Commandments, which is the heart of his law for his people. But those are the, the requirements of loyalty. Those are the things, the commands, the laws that God has given to his people that he might say, through obeying me in this way, this is how you express your loyalty to me. This is how you show your love to me. That's how they were to express their vows. You see, the covenant relationship involves two parties. It's two ways. Now, this is not to say that the basis of the covenant relationship was what they did. We can very easily think that, okay, in the New Testament, God relates to his people on the basis of grace. But in the Old Testament, it was all about works. The way that people were saved, the way that people got in relationship with God, well, it was just by keeping the laws. It's not true. 
God's relationship with his people in the Old and New Testament are both on the basis of grace. We see it even in our passage here. Notice how it starts in verse 4. You yourselves saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The basis of the covenant relationship is God's prior rescuing of his people. He's already rescued them. He's already brought them into relationship with himself. And it's based upon nothing in them. In fact, as you go along in the story, you see there was nothing special about Israel. God had just chosen to love them and to rescue them. The basis of the covenant is always grace. They don't get into the relationship through their good works, but entirely by the grace of God. But what's crucial to see is that their response determined their experience of the relationship. You see the difference there? Their response to God's grace would determine how they experience the relationship. Do they experience blessing or do they experience curse? Their obedience determined how the relationship is enjoyed. If they threw off his commands, if they went their own way, then this relationship is going to be painful. And it's not going to be a blessing. In fact, it's going to be very, very hard. And in fact, at the end of the day, it was possible for them to entirely break the covenant through idolatry, which is like adultery. And in fact, they do over and over and over and over. So the thing to see is that the covenant relationship involves two parties. Its basis is grace, but there is a responsibility on our part in relationship with God. The same is true with marriage. As you go and you sit at a wedding and you hear... Two sets of vows, right? Each party takes a set of vows. Each party makes a promise to the other. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you in sickness and in health. No matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. But there is an understanding there. This covenant relationship can be broken. One party can break it, ultimately through adultery. It's possible. It's two ways. The same is true with God's covenant with his people. But here's the problem. Here's the but. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. This is how God designed the covenant relationship to work with his people, and it's how every relationship is. In every relationship, there's two parties that express love to one another. But the problem with God's covenant with his people is his people, and it's their hearts. You know what? They don't even get past the wedding day. We'll see that in a few weeks. Right there on their wedding day, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving the terms and the vows of the covenant, Israel is down at the foot of the mountain worshiping an idol, which is spiritual adultery. They go to Aaron and they say, we don't know where Moses went. Make us an idol. We're going to bow down and worship it. He says, okay, give me your earrings and your gold. He makes an idol. They all bow down and worship it, and they commit to celebrating and worshiping that idol right there on their wedding day. It's the kind of same, I mean, to to just get the, the sense of it, imagine on a wedding day, the groom is standing at the altar. There's an awkward silence. Nobody knows where the, where the bride is. And then someone finds her with the help in the back room. If that's graphic, it's nowhere near as graphic as what Israel does in relationship with God. And that's the problem. The problem is their hearts. They cannot be faithful. 
And so here's what has to happen. And here's what God will ultimately do. God will have to keep both sides of the covenant. And that's what he does in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, See, God knew all along. From the very beginning, he knew this wasn't going to work. From the very beginning, God had planned that one day, in the fullness of time, he would send forth his son, born of a woman. He had to be fully man in every way. Born under the law, in covenant with God, to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. You see, what God has done in Christ is that he has sent him to take our place and to fulfill both sides of the covenant. That's the gospel. Jesus came to be the perfect covenant keeper in our place. Jesus came to completely keep the Ten Commandments every day of his life. Every day of his life, he loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, something that we have never done. He loved his neighbor as himself. He lived every day of his life in worship and praise to the Father. Every day of his life was a picture of fidelity and faithfulness to the Father. He was a perfect covenant keeper for us. And not only that, he was treated as a covenant breaker. The curse of the covenant fell upon him. He was cut off. All of the terror of this scene And Mount Sinai was poured out upon him on the cross. All of God's curse that we deserve was poured poured out upon him. He was cut off. He was cast out. He was treated as a covenant breaker so that we might be treated as covenant keepers. God sent his son to keep both ends of the covenant. So if you are in union with Christ, do you know what's now true of you? You are fully accepted before the Father in spite of everything that is true of your heart. Free access, free and total access. The writer of Hebrews will say, let us then, after he's laid out the amazing realities of the gospel, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let us approach this throne With this kind of holiness, let us come into the presence of this God with boldness, with confidence. Why? Because He has kept covenant in our place. Listen, the only person who dares to wake a king at 3 a.m. in the morning is his child. You see the reality of us? Because we are His children, we can come confidently into the presence of this holy God like little children. Wake Him up and tug on his cape, right? That's the reality of Christ as our covenant keeper. We are made clean. We are washed. We are set apart. The curse of the law will never fall upon us. All of these things are true of us. We are his treasured possession because he kept covenant in our place. That is what Exodus looks ahead to. Now, how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us Monday through Saturday? Let me quickly try to apply it to us. What does it mean? At the end of the day, it means this. We are now set free to live holy lives. That is the implication of the gospel. We are now set free to worship Him, 
to glorify Him and to go after obedience with fullness of heart. So the implications of the gospel is not, hey, your sin has been taken away. He has fulfilled the law on your behalf. Now go and do whatever you want to do. That's not what the gospel says. It says He has rescued you and you now belong to Him. All the terms have been satisfied. You are now considered righteous in His sight. Now live in light of who you now are. We are His treasured possession. We are His holy people in spite of all the things that we know are true of us. We are His holy people. And here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Philippians. Let us live up to what we have already attained. We've already been made holy. Now live holy lives. You see, whenever it is only whenever you are secure in His love that you are free for true obedience. Only whenever you are secure in His love can you live for true love to Him because before, all of our obedience is just a way to secure His favor. It's not for Him ultimately. It's for us. It's deeply selfish at its root. But if we have been fully rescued, fully accepted, if we are secure in His love, then all of our obedience to Him is purely a gift of love. The implication is that we are now free to live entirely body and soul for Him.